Today's message will be entitled, The Moat and the Beam. Now, some of you are kind of looking at me quizzically. You'll find out what... But, but, no, no, not it's beam, B-E-A-M, not B-E-A-N, beam, okay? So you'll know what I mean in just a minute. Hallelujah. Okay, reading in the uh, scriptures. Matthew chapter one, uh, 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And also Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Father, we praise and thank you for your word, which gives life. Lord, it says in your word that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature not manifest in his sight, in Jesus' sight, but all things are naked and open unto him with whom we have to do. And Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would just penetrate our hearts and our minds and our spirits today, Lord God. And may he convict us, Lord God. May the Holy Spirit convict us, Lord, if there's things that are not right in our own lives, so that we can bring it to the cross, Lord, and let it be covered by your precious blood. And I thank you for being with us, Lord, and anointing this message. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we've been covering a series entitled The Calvary Road. And it's on the book, The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. I've adopted as a theme verse for this uh, series, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And it says, they overcame here him that is the devil and his minions, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Chapter 1, which we covered, was entitled Brokenness. And it says that we not, all need to be broken. We need to have broken lives and live broken lives. And that involves crucified living. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Also, Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, 
pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. When he talks about losing your life, that means losing your own self-will. That self-will needs to be broken. Just like when you break a horse, you want to bend it so that its will is conformed to your will. And that's what we need as Christians. Our will needs to be conformed to the will of the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Okay. Chapter 2 was cups running over. The cup is symbolic of the uh, human heart. When it says cups running over, it means to not just be filled with the Holy Spirit, but filled to the brimming over so that it can spill out to those around us. And bring a lost and dying world to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 was the way of fellowship. The fall of man. Fellowship was broken between man and God. And not just between man and God, but between us as human beings. We lost fellowship with one another. And God's cure for that is to walk in the light. 1 John 1, 7 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from every sin. So fellowship is return, uh, restored when we walk in the light. And we, we, we saw that walking in the light means that you don't have any con unconfessed sin. You let the searchlight of God's Holy Spirit illuminate your entire being. The dark recesses of your heart. And if there is sin there, it will illuminate it so that you can bring it to the foot of the cross. Chapter 4 was the highway of holiness. The Hessian terminology came from Isaiah 35, verses 8 and 9, and it talks about the highway of holiness, which to Hessian means the foot of the cross. The holiness is, leads up to the foot of the cross. And it said that there are no lions or ravenous beasts there. They're off to the wayside. The lions were symbolic of what? Symbolic of Satan. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe it's uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, <clears throat> as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And also uh, the ravenous beast refers to the false prophets, the uh, Doctrines that are out there trying to lead us astray. Remember Jesus talked about to, to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Okay, so you stay on that highway to holiness. You don't need to fear these pitfalls that the enemy has for you. Then chapter 5. The dove and the lamb. That speaks to us of the two meekest animals on God's earth. The dove speaks of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is easily 
startled, easily grieved if we do not walk in that highway of holiness. And it's so sensitive to disharmony. Brothers and sisters, I want this church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if we have disharmony. The Lamb is symbolic of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who meekly accepted His fate, the death on the cross. And at Jesus' baptism, both of these symbolic animals were present there. Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Holy Spirit coming down as a, as a dove. Chapter 6 is what we covered last week, Revival in the Home. And this dealt with the relationships that we have with the people that are closest to us, especially those that we live with. And we saw that in, to have harmony in the home, revival in the home, we need to practice openness with each other and not hide who and what we really are. We need to also display agape love, the unconditional love, the love by choice. We love each other, not because we're that lovable, but because we choose to love. Now this week, we're going to talk about the moat and the beam. Now, Hessian's title for this chapter comes from the King James translation of Matthew chapter 7, verse, verse 3. Jesus said, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in your own eye? Now, that verse is kind of cleaned up a little bit more for us to better understand it in the New King James Version. And we read there, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Okay, in today's terminology, we might say, Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and miss the fact that there's a two-by-four in your own eye? Okay, does that make it clear? Hallelujah. Now this, is, of course, is a hyperbole, what's called a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggeration or overstatement. Now those of you that were here when I was uh, teaching on biblical hermeneutics, which is the science and art of biblical interpretation, it talked about a hyperbole. And the definition given in the workbook there is a hyperbole is a figure of speech that exaggerates a truth to make a point. The word literally means to throw beyond. It is to overstate a truth on purpose. Now this method of uh, figure of speech was one of Jesus' favorite uh, methods when he would uh, preach. Some other hyperboles that were used by Jesus. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24 is right in the middle of uh, the seven woes that Jesus directed at the Pharisees. You know, he got up there and he exposed the Pharisees for the hypocrites that they were. And this is one of them. 
He said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done, that is, uh, doing your tithing, without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Can you just see that? Swallowing a camel? Kind of hard to do, isn't it? So he was using that as a figure of speech. You know, you Pharisees, you know, you pour a cup of water, you see a little gnat in there, and you go take the care to strain out that gnat so you don't drink the gnat too. That was, uh, you know, the nitpicking that they were doing at the law, straining the gnat. But then they swallowed the camel because they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. They were always using the law to pin down the people, keep them under the yoke of bondage. And Jesus later said, you do all these things and you don't lift one finger to help them. Another hyperbole is found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Can you just picture that again? Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was not saying it's impossible for you get, to get into heaven if you're materially wealthy. What he was saying is that you use that material wealth to benefit God's kingdom. You know, there are many rich people that you read about in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Abraham was a wealthy man. His son Isaac was a wealthy man. So was Jacob. So was David. So was Solomon. He said it's not impossible for these people to get into the kingdom of God. It's just a, a lot harder. Why? Because you get distracted with the, the uh, uh, material wealth that you have. There's a uh, proverb back in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where the uh, inspired writer there says, Give me you know, neither wealth nor poverty. He said, If you give me poverty, I might still steal and uh, drag the name of the Lord into the mud. And if I've got too much wealth, then I'll just uh, kind of forget God and say, who is God? You know, I don't need God. I got all this material wealth. Okay, so you, you know, strike a balance. You know, if, uh, you know, you're not material wealthy, don't seek it because that material wealth becomes an idol to you. And it's a sin called the lust of the eyes. Okay, judging others. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. If you've got a ruler, you know, a ruler here and you're going to measure things, you know, whether it's a sin or not, Jesus said, the same measure that you use to judge others, you're going to be judged by the same standard. It will be measured back to you. Now, 
We are not to be judges, brothers and sisters, because only God knows the hearts of those around us. Don't go around saying so-and-so does this and then therefore they're going to hell. You don't know that. Only God knows people's hearts. Amen? Amen. You don't know their hearts. You are, you are finite in your knowledge. So let God handle that, not you. And in the final analysis, it is, God, it, it is Jesus who is the ultimate judge. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to who? The to the Son. Skipping down to verse 26 of John chapter 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him the authority authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So let Jesus be the judge of other people. And finally, in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Paul writes, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master. Who's the master? Jesus is the master. We are bond servants. Servants by choice. Okay? Jesus is the master, and Paul writes to his own master, to Jesus, he stands or falls. So it's to Jesus that you stand or fall. You know, I like what uh, Queen Elizabeth said. She was a Christian, and I heard the one quote that she made. She said, the thing that keeps me sober, keeps me from... You know, becoming conceited at my exalted position is the fact that I know that I stand accountable for God. Everybody in this room is accountable for God. And everyone will be judged. You either get, stand at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for the believers. And you will be judged by what you have done in your physical body, whether you've uh, used the gifts and the talents that God and the riches that God has entrusted to you to further his kingdom. Or you stand at the great white throne judgment. You never made a commitment to Christ. And you don't want to be at that great, great white throne judgment, brothers and sisters. As terrible as that moment is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be far, far worse at the great white throne judgment. Because everybody there will be judged guilty. You don't want to be at that one. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be rough, but the other one's far, infinitely worser, worse. Okay. Uh, it's interesting, though, that uh, the context there in Romans chapter 14, because the Apostle Paul is talking about the, what, what is known as the doubtful things. And these in, he singled out two of them. He singled out the, uh, uh, you know, whether 
You know, he says one man esteems one day above another. Another man esteems every day alike. Let everyone be convinced in their own mind. And another thing, too, is he's talking about the weaker brothers think that you should only eat vegetables. And another one thinks that you can eat everything. I happen to be in the, the latter category. <clears throat> I used to talk with this uh, Seventh-day Adventist who was a strict vegetarian. I think he came in one day and told me that he ate a, an egg one time and it really messed up his stomach. And that's because, you know, he'd been eating all uh, uh, vegetable, vegetables before then in the plant matter. And so his stomach wasn't used to that, and it really gave him an upset stomach. But he tried to convince me that Jesus and the apostles were strict vegetarians too. So I said, uh, well, is that true? Uh, what was Peter's occupation before Jesus came to him? He was a fisherman. So I guess he ate fish then too. What about Jesus? You know, after his resurrection, it says that they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. And then when he was there at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples came on in, he said, come and dine. And he had bread there. And what else did he have? Fish. What did Jesus distribute to the feeding of the five thousands? Five thousand. Bread and fish, Right. So don't give me this stuff about uh, them being strict vegetarians. It's obvious to see that they were not. And the same thing with the one man esteems a day above another. Being a seventh-day Adventist, he believed in a strict seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. You know, he once told me, you know, come and uh, worship with me on Saturday. He said the Spirit is not there on Sunday. Anybody think that the Spirit is not here? Spirit is here. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus is the Lord here. Okay. So that's what uh, Paul's conclusion is. Let Jesus be the judge, not you. Are you a fruit inspector? Fruit inspector? What's this got to do, you know, with uh, this topic? You know, I got this from a quote by... Uh, J. Vernon McGee. And I heard J. Vernon McGee say on his radio program one time, God did not appoint me to be a judge, but he did appoint me to be a fruit inspector. That is, we are to inspect each other's fruit, starting with us, too. Fruit inspector doesn't mean you just inspect everybody else's fruit. It means you inspect your fruit too. Amen? Now this is not talking about unbelievers so much. Because their need, first of all, is to get right with God. It means that you give them help, your family and friends, especially if they are involved in some kind of self-destructive behavior, pornography addiction, or substance abuse, something like that. 
You try to give them the help that they need, but the ultimate choice is theirs. They choose to do what they ever do. And that's not their worst problem either. If they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, their worst problem is that they are they do not know God. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And your objective there is not to, is so much to correct them for what they're doing in their life. It's to try to preach the gospel to them and let them know how they can find the Lord Jesus Christ and have a personal relationship with Him. You came into this church. You didn't come to a religion. We're not a religion. We have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we are striving to have. To know Jesus and to draw closer to Him day by day. Hallelujah. Now there are a number of scriptures that tell us that we are to be fruit inspectors and to confront our Christian brothers and sisters if we see bad fruit in their lives. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in what? In the spirit of gentleness. I'm going to come back to that at the end of this. But it, you'd restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. That's the reason why we are not to be judges, brothers and sisters. You know why? Because too often we appoint ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. You let God handle it. Amen? You can confront, confront that brother and sister that you see going astray. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about that back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> where a member of the church was engaging in sexual immorality. And Paul said it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man should have his father's wife, apparently his stepmother. He was engaging in immorality with his stepmother. And Paul says, you take that guy and you put him out of the church. And then let... God deal with him. He said, release him to Satan. You know, let Satan uh, uh, rake him over the coals. And it turned out that that man did repent and come back to the church. And then Paul says, you've got to forgive him too. Okay? So we're not to be the judge, jury, and executioner of anyone. Why? Because we are fallible human beings ourselves. Another scripture regarding this. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle. Now he's writing this to the church at Thessalonica. You know what happened in Thessalonica? After Jesus left, he told them all about that Jesus is coming again. So they thought it was going to be right away. 
And so there's a lot of busy buddies that said went out and they quit their jobs and they're just sitting around, you know, uh, disgusting. And uh, the Apostle Paul rebukes them. And he says, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. You ever heard that expression? That's what the Apostle Paul told them. So Paul writes in the follow-up letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, referring to, you know, get busy, you know, the Lord is coming, but it is not now. Jesus said, occupy until I come. That is, keep doing what you're doing until Jesus comes back. If anyone does not obey the, our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Tell him, brother, what you're doing is not right. You need to get back and not make yourself just a lazy bum, you know, Jesus is coming back, but it's not right now. So you just need to be do, keep on keeping on until he does. And finally, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So often we go around nitpicking in other people's lives. Why? Well, it's, chances are it's to make ourselves feel superior. You ever compare yourself with other people? Not to do that. Don't make a habit of this. Don't go around closely inspecting everyone else's lives so you can pair, compare yourself to them and feel superior. You know, do you ever listen to people? One way to tell if there's bad fruit in someone's life is to listen to their words. Because the words of a person act like a window to their soul. What does a pe person's speech tell you about him or her? Even more important is what about your words? Do you ever listen to yourself when you talk? How many know what I mean? You listen to yourself? How do you come across to others? And even more important, what about God? How do your words come across to Him? You know, Jesus, you know, God listens to everything you say. I shared with you uh, some weeks ago the story of the vision that Isaiah had. Isaiah the prophet. He was taken up there to heaven in this vision and he saw the throne room of God. He saw God high and lifted up on his throne. And the seraphim were flying around him and they were saying what? They were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Almighty One. What happened to Isaiah? It says that he fell on his knees. And what did he say? 
He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He became convicted of his sin. And what was that one part of his anatomy that he saw? He saw he was a man of unclean lips. God listens to everything you say, brothers and sisters. And to the Pharisees, this is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of performing all these miracles by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. In other words, he was doing it by Satan. And Jesus said to them, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account for on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So watch your words, brothers and sisters. Amen? You agree with that? Kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? Now what Hessian is driving at in this chapter? The moat and the beam. Too often we are quick to correct others for the wrong motivation and in the wrong spirit. We all know that what Jesus meant by the moat, that is the speck in the other person's eye. It is some, this is what Hessian is writing here. It is some fault which we fancy we can see in him or her. We don't want to be sexist here. It may be an act that he has done against us or some attitude he adopts towards us. But what did Jesus mean by the beam in our eyes? Now this is key here. This is what Hessian says here. I suggest that the beam in our eye is simply an unloving reaction toward the one that has the speck. Without a doubt, there's fault in the other person. But our reaction to that wrong is also wrong. The speck in him has provoked in us a resentment, a coldness, or criticism, or bitterness, or evil speaking, or ill will, all of them uh, variants of the same basic ill, and that ill is a lack of love. Hessian continues here. He says, that, says the Lord Jesus, is far worse than the tiny wrong, sometimes unconscious. You know, somebody slights us, and they don't even know about what they're doing. They, they don't even realize it. They provoked it. And the Lord Jesus means by this uh, comparison to tell us that our unloving reaction to the other's wrong is a great beam to the tiny speck. Every time we point a finger at another's wrong, three, three point back to us. You point a finger at somebody, how many fingers point back at you? Three. And I'm sure we've all heard that little expression before at one time or another. 
What about that uh, expression, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones? You ever hear that? Okay. You live in a glass house, don't throw stones. <laughs> Hessian continues, the first beginning of resentment is a beam or a plank or a two by four as it is also the first flicker of an unkind thought or the first suggestion of unloving criticism. Where that is so, it only distort, disturbs our, distorts our vision, and we never see our brother as he really is, beloved by God. Every person here, regardless of their fault, is beloved by God. God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a satisfactory atonement for our sin. I told you this story before, you know, uh, praying height of India, man who knew God better than anybody just about anybody that has ever lived because he would spend hours a day in prayer, sometimes four, six, eight, even ten hours a day in prayer. And there was one time he saw this native minister really needed a revival in his life, you know, and uh, he starts praying for the man. And he starts out with saying, Oh, Lord, you know how cold this man's heart is. And God stopped him right there and put his spiritual finger right on praying Hag's mouth and says, Not so. He who touches him touches the apple of my eye. And praying Hyde had to repent. He said, Oh God, forgive me. Because I've become the accuser of the brethren. And God showed him how to pray for the man. And he started looking at the man's life and he saw things that were praiseworthy. And he started thanking God for the good qualities that were in this man's life. And he found out that a short time later, that man had had a spiritual revival in his life. And he was going out there and winning souls for Christ. One other little illustration. I remember, I've got a, a book in my library. I was looking for it this morning, so I don't even remember what the title was. Uh, but it was by Charles and Francis Hunter. And it was the story of a uh, Assemblies of God minister in, uh, I believe it was Idaho. And he had a number of visions from God. In one of these visions, he pictured God taking him up to heaven and showing him this vast library, all these different books. And those books were the lives of everyone that had lived, that was redeemed by God. And for some reason, he went to the book of Abraham. And he started thumbing through it. And he saw places where Abraham had kept the faith, the birth of his son Isaac. 
than even being willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And then other times when he took in strangers, gave them food and shelter. And the pastor said, I couldn't find what I was looking for. What was he looking for? He was looking for Abraham's failures. And he couldn't find where Abraham had that lapse of faith. Lied about Sarah, his wife, being, you know, his sister. Didn't you know, we saw that just, I think it was last week. You know, didn't do it just once, he did it twice. And he asked God, why, why aren't there any failures in Abraham's book here? You know what God told him? I don't record failure. You're under the blood. Your failures are all under the blood. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. God does not record your failures. So don't feel guilty about them. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. It's not just brings tears to my eyes, brothers and sisters. Hessian concludes here. First cast a beam out of your own eye. That is the thing that we must do first. We must recognize our unloving attitude toward him as sin. On our knees, we must go with it to Calvary and see Jesus there and catch a glimpse of what sin cost, cost him. At his feet, we must repent of it and be broken afresh and trust the Lord Jesus to cleanse it away by his precious blood and fill us with his love for that person that wronged us. And he will and does if we claim his promise. Now, other people and even our own hearts may tell us that the sin we are confessing of that unloving attitude is not half as bad as the other person's sin. But the one thing that we have learned that under the shadow of Calvary, we are not to compare our sins to those of others. We are to take care of ourselves first. Can you say amen to that? Take care of yourself first, brothers and sisters. Now, conclusion here. Sorry, I'm a slide behind here. If we have been wronged, or we see another overtaken in some fault, we first need to go to the Lord in prayer about it and ask for wisdom on how to handle the situation. The Apostle James wrote, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and does not condemn. If we feel that someone has wronged us, we must first cleanse our heart from any bitterness from the wrong. And then pray for wisdom if we feel like maybe a confrontation is warranted. Pray especially 
that God would fill your heart with love for that person. Love has got to be always the motivation. Amen? The Apostle Paul wrote, The love of Christ constrains us. It compels us. That has got to be our supreme motivation. And if a brother is involved in some kind of sin, then a confrontation is definitely needed. Particularly if others have been hurt by it. This is why immorality by church leadership is so horrendous, so horrible. Because many, many people are hurt by it. And so a confrontation is necessary. That's exactly why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees so heavily. Because they were hurting the common people. By their hypocrisy. Placing all these heavy burdens on all the people. And then they were guilty of the same things themselves. That's what Jesus was talking about. You've neglected justice. Faith. You've neglected all these things. And you're the ones that are supposed to be leading the people. And you're such hypocrites. <laughs> Finally, if a confrontation is necessary, pray also for the spirit in which it is to deliver, be delivered. Remember, the object of confronting that person is for them to receive it favorably and to be one to your point of view and something that is something that may not happen if you deliver it in the wrong spirit. I shared with you the time in Bible college where this one Christian brother confronted me about something in my life. And he did it in the wrong spirit. I knew he was right, but he did it in the wrong spirit. He said, this is very, very bad. He was shouting at me like that. I knew he was right, but I, you know, kind of rebelled against it because of the spirit in which he did it. Remember, we're to rebuke each other in what? The spirit of gentleness, according to Paul in um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Okay, I'm finished here. Let's everybody uh, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to give an invitation because maybe many of you have not made that first decision to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. And we're all sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote, uh, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What did he also say? He said, The wages of sin is death. Death there means spiritual separation. We're all going to die physically one day, but we're, you know what? We're all born dead spiritually. Paul also wrote, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you haven't been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dead right now in your trespasses and sins. You've been separated from God. 
and you need to be reconciled to him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's anybody here that has wants to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, just raise up your hand. You want to be saved. You want to go to heaven someday. Just raise up your hand. Okay, if you've raised your hand, just say with me now. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I know that I am a sinner. But I know that you died there on the cross and paid for my sins. You gave your very physical life and spiritual life with your Father on a temporary basis. And you did that for me. And I know, Lord, that you have been raised back again to life. And that symbolizes that every sin in the world has been paid, including my sin. Lord, you paid the price to bring me back to you. And so, Lord, I accept that. I accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I now make him my Lord. Into to my heart, Lord Jesus, you said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now, Lord, and set me free from my sin and my shame. Thank you, Lord, for coming in now and cleansing me from all unrighteousness. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for the message that you shared with me that I've shared with your people now. And Lord, I pray that you just help us to remember it. And Lord, seek not to judge other people. Lord, we can examine the fruit of their lives. But most of all, Lord, we need to examine the fruit of our own lives. We should be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. That love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience... Lord, all the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Lord, the fruit is love. So, Lord, shed your love into our hearts, Lord God, and let us manifest it to others. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.